it was Experian Automotive, which was published in Forbes. They found that 61% of wealthy individuals, and when I say wealthy, they define that as earning more than 250000 per year in household income, drove Hondas, Toyotas, and Fords. First, a quick word from our best ever partner, PropStream. PropStream is an all-in-one platform that gives you the tools you need to reach more leads, book more meetings, and close more deals with less work. With PropStream, you can find vacant and off-market properties in seconds, nationwide or specific to any zip code. You can skip trace owner information, find cash buyers specific to an area, and find other investors to potentially partner with or fund your deals. PropStream provides you the comprehensive data and market insight you need to be at the top of your real estate game. PropStream also features state-of-the-art marketing tools that allow you to send out direct mail postcards and ringless voicemail. Even if you're not in real estate, PropStream can help you locate high net worth individuals to invest in your non-real estate business. Or if you are in real estate, then you can find them to invest in your real estate business. You can use this tool to find people who have millions of dollars in equity in their homes, and you can reach out to them via email, telephone, or snail mail. This is the perfect real estate investing tool for wholesalers and real estate agents, real estate investors, and entrepreneurs. I love how easy the PropStream website is to use. With a few clicks, you can review comps in the area or estimate rehab costs prior to purchasing a property. Act now to take advantage of the plethora of properties that have and will continue to hit the market during this time. And best ever listeners, do you know we got something special for you? You're going to receive a free seven-day all-access trial to experience all the features this powerful tool has, and you'll experience it firsthand. Just go to your7dayfreetrial.com. That's Y-O-U-R, the number seven, dayfreetrial.com. Get started with this. Get your seven-day free trial and start growing your business even more so than you have been. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Best ever listeners, today's guest is being interviewed by Theo Hicks. You know Theo, he's with us every Friday on Follow Along Friday. You're going to get a lot of value from this conversation. So with that being said, let's get going. Hello, best listeners, and welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Theo Hicks, and we are back with another edition of the Actively Passive Investing Show. It'll be me and Travis Watts. Travis, how are you doing today? Theo, doing great, man. Doing the celery juice for those who listen. The last episode was all about celery juice. <laughs> yeah, I was joking. So that Travis needed to have that last week. We started it, and he was just, the camera would go to him, and he'd be slurping down his celery juice. So yes, we talked about celery juice, health hacks, and last week's first actually passive investing show today. We're going to get back to more specifics as to your passive investing business. And we're going to talk about how to be frugal, how to save like the wealthy. So we're going to dive into another one of Travis's amazing blog posts. He did a really good job at his blog post, very detailed, lots of sources. So he's not just making this stuff up. He's actually basing it off of what wealthy people are doing. So it's broken down into three categories. So I'll let Travis maybe tell us the background of his blog post, and then we'll jump into category number one, which is housing. I thought this would be interesting. So I was raised by two very frugal parents and frugality's played a huge role in my life and my family's life. And I think it gets kind of a bad rep from time to time. I think a lot of people confuse being cheap with being frugal. And I just thought, hey, here's a cool idea. Let's take a look at what high net worth individuals do. Some of the most wealthy folks out there, or even just general millionaires. I pulled some studies just on that in the US. Let's see how they're being frugal as compared to just kind of the average stats for the majority of people. So what I found through this research is that people spend their money in America on three 
primary categories. That's housing, transportation, and food, as you probably could have guessed those categories. But again, I just thought, well, let's take a look at maybe a different perspective into these and let's see what people with essentially endless amounts of money are doing in those categories. So that's kind of what prompted it. Just self-interest, really. <laughs> I've always been an advocate of frugality and I just wanted to paint the picture a different way. So that's kind of what spawned this article. Perfect. So let's step into those three categories. So category number one, which I'm assuming is the category that people spend the most amount of money on, which is, is housing. Yeah. So with housing, the statistic is, and the links and the sources and all that, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, all that kind of stuff is in the blog. So if you want to actually go to the source and figure all this stuff out, feel free. But the bottom line is that Americans spend roughly 30% of household income on housing, which makes sense, right? So that number has crept up over the years. I see that as being a pretty high number. But a couple of things I want to think about were Obviously, we have the extreme cases, like a lot of people know the story of Warren Buffett, how he bought his home in Omaha, Nebraska, 50 plus years ago for $31,000. And he hasn't moved since he hasn't upgraded. He doesn't have these mansions. You know, he stayed pretty humble in that category. But that's easy to discredit. Oh, Warren, that's just him. He's just super crazy. Okay, so then I want to take kind of a more also well known individual, but not near the net worth or or wealth of Warren Buffett. So I had to pull stats and facts from public figures. because they're publicly available. I wanted people to see the sources there. So I took Tim Cook, who's the CEO of Apple, and he's out there in basically Silicon Valley. And here's how I kind of painted the picture. So Tim Cook has an overall net worth estimated around $650 million. Okay, so not nearly Warren Buffett's whatever, $80 billion, but $650 million. And he bought his home out in California for $1.9 million. And if you put that in perspective, I don't know if Tim paid cash or he mortgaged this house, but if he paid cash, that's 3% of his net worth. He certainly could have kind of upped the ante, right? He could have bought virtually any home he wanted at that kind of net worth and or salary. Speaking of salary, in 2019, he earned a total compensation of about $125 million from Apple. And so assuming that he mortgaged his home with traditional loan 20% down, he'd have payments of around 7500 a month. So if you put that in perspective of how much does he pay month to month, year to year, it was like 0.072% of what he's earning towards housing. So obviously with the high net worth, it's a little bit skewed, but the point is, and guys, there's hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of these examples, but the point is these folks could put any amount of money they wanted to into housing, but they choose the frugality path. They choose to have what I refer to as enough. They have a nice home and it's enough. They're not trying to keep up with the Joneses. They're not trying to say Warren Buffett's not looking at someone that has a $90 billion net worth and go, oh, he's got a bigger home. I'm going to increase my house. I'm going to have five cars because he only has four. The point is figure out what enough is for you and be content with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And something that I looked up, so I was just curious about Tim Cook, because he lives in California. So $1.9 million is not going to get you a long way in California. Mm -hmm. And he's on his blog post, but his house is only 2,400 square feet. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't even go that far into the It's a a, a dinky little guy. And (laughs) one thing that I was thinking about when I was reading this was the first house that I lived in was 2,000 square feet. And we lived really close to a city. And then we moved to Florida into a suburb and you might even go a lot further there. It's this really, really big house. And we're there. And then my first movie, I'm like, oh, this is amazing because it's so much bigger than our first house. And then once I got used to it, I was like, oh man, you know what's going to happen is when we move, we're going to move into a bigger house to get that wow factor again. So luckily when we moved to Chicago, we downgraded back into a smaller house. So that's one thing too, is you got to mention with the Joneses. It's kind of the runaway effect where you, you get something new, it's really great. And then you get used to it. And then you need to get something bigger and better next time to get that same feeling. So just kind of being aware of that and realizing that that feeling's only going to last for a little bit. You get your brand new massive house. People that live in these massive mansions, I promise you they're used to it. And it's just completely normal to them. Just how your house, your apartment is completely normal to you. That's one thing I wanted to say. Yeah, that's a great point. My wife and I have gone through it too. And there was a time where we were kind of on that conveyor belt, so to speak. And at a certain point, it's like, wait a second, it's just us. It's just two of us. It's like, What's our next step? Do we need a five bedroom house now? <laughs> you know, it gets kind of stupid. So we actually started going the opposite way. My wife especially got really into this minimalism trend. So we started giving everything away and downsizing. And to your point, yeah. 
we went the other way with it. As we mm -hmm. got to about the size of Tim Cook's house, so 2,400 square foot, and then it was like 1,200, and then it was 900. <laughs> you know, we went the other way. But just knowing what's practical and what's enough, you're never going to impress the world by just getting one step ahead each time. There's always a thousand people above you. So just figure it mm -hmm. out for yourself. And I think going back to what we were talking about last week with the health and the mindset stuff, I think it's more about getting a house and making it into a place that you feel good in. Like yeah. make your office into what you want it to be as opposed yeah. to just getting a massive house and just moving into it. So uh, that's something else I wanted to mention too. So you mentioned here that uh, the data shows that nearly 30% of household income is spent on housing costs. And so this is the actively passive investing. So it's a really, really good way to really quickly determine if an apartment deal is good or really any investing deal is good when it comes to either fix and flipper or if you're just investing in an apartment, really any type of investing. You take a look at what the cost is for the house, right? What the housing payment is going to be, what the rent payment is going to be on the average, and then compare that to the median income. So and see what that ratio is. So if it's 30%, then you know that at least half the people in that area can afford to live there. But if it's like 60%, then you know you're not going to have a strong demand for that apartment in that area. It's a really good way. It's not the only thing you do, but it's really kind of fast way to see, okay, can people afford to live <laughs> at an apartment community? And you want it to be 30% or less, that number. Yeah, great point. And then the other thing I wanted to ask you, so I know a lot of people like Robert Kiyosaki, for example, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, he talks about how having your own house is a liability, not an asset. And I think Grant Cardone, at least when I heard him talk about this, mentioned that renting your house is a lot better than owning your house. Yeah. I was wondering from a frugality perspective, do you think that one is better than the other or does it just kind of depend? Yeah, Robert Kiyosaki is another one of those guys similar to Warren Buffett. I forget the years and the data and the stats, but he bought his home back in whatever, like the early 90s, late 90s, and has never moved since. Bought a nice home, not a mansion, just a nice home. He wasn't that wealthy back then. And the same thing. Yeah, your house is a liability. So they went through the 2008, 2009. They held on. They came back up. He hadn't sold. And Grant Cardone's big thing is own the rentals and rent your owner-occupied place. So he's got his place out in Miami and he travels kind of around with his family and rents. And my wife and I actually do the same thing right now. So we eventually personally kind of came to that conclusion where we were choosing to rent instead of own. But for us, it's more of a flexibility lifestyle. We like to travel a lot. We like to move occasionally. So it just made more sense. But it also makes sense to your point as a home is a liability. So how much of our equity do we want to tie up in something that may not earn us money and may potentially actually lose us money depending mm -hmm. on how we're buying? So it's funny that the stigma that still exists out there around renting and it's like, hey man, some of the wealthiest people out there are renting and there's a good reason for it. You just got to dig a little deeper and run the numbers to figure that out. Mm -hmm. I think that's a natural transition into the number two, which is transportation. So I'll let you get into that, but I'm assuming your answer is going to be the same, but leasing versus owning. I want to know what your thoughts were on that when it comes to being frugal, but I'll let you go through transportation the same way with your housing. Sure. So let me just reference here real quick. It was Experian Automotive, which was published in Forbes. They found that 61% of wealthy individuals, when I say wealthy, they define that as earning more than 250000 per year in household income, drove Hondas, Toyotas, and Fords as their primary vehicles. And I thought that was really interesting. So many people, myself included way back when, are striving for the one day I'm going to have the Mercedes, the BMW, the whatever. And I've owned all those cars, but yeah, it's another liability that's just going to go straight down in value. And we'll talk about the lease own thing. But here was something kind of interesting is I pulled this list. Again, there's so many examples, but here's just a few billionaires who drive vehicles valued under $30,000. We're talking about billionaires and vehicles under 30000 Not just one vehicle they own. This is their primary driving vehicle. So Steve Ballmer, billionaire, Ford Fusion Hybrid, 30,000 MSRP. Mark Zuckerberg in Acura, 30,000 MSRP. Jeff Bezos is famously known to drive that old Honda Accord that he had, which was like 20,000, I think, when it was new, but he didn't even buy it new. And then just on and on. But there's so many billionaires driving these expensive vehicles. And I think for the same reason, couldn't all of these folks just go buy the Lamborghini and the Bentley and the Ferrari? And of course, some do, but a lot don't. So the statistics by AAA is that the average American spending $9,282 per year on a vehicle, not household vehicles, a vehicle, which is about 773 a month. So if you equate that to the average household income, which is around 61000 per year, that's 
of household income dedicated to a vehicle. So pretty crazy. And it's just Mm -hmm. fun to think about these stats and then get out there when you're on the road and driving and looking around and all I see are new cars everywhere. Everyone's just trying to keep up with each other, but you know, the average incomes. And so again, I'm a big advocate for it's not what you buy. It's how you buy it. When I mentioned earlier that I've owned luxury cars, you know, whatever, Range Rovers, I've had Porsches, I've had all this stuff, but I've never paid more than $13,000 for a vehicle. I've always bought used in good condition, had a good mechanic lined up, and that's just how I've bought vehicles. So it's not to say you can't have those vehicles, but I've always kept them at such a small margin, either to income or to net worth, with the exception of one bad <laughs> thing I did when I was younger, when I was trying to keep up with the Joneses myself. So the Porsche or the... I bought a Range Rover and I had a very low income. <laughs> Yeah, you mentioned how when you drive on the road, you see the cars that people are driving. Because right before the pandemic started, we were looking at getting a new car because we only had one. And then my wife's company car went away. And so we're looking at cars. And I was like, I, these, cars, these cars are so expensive. And I see people driving them. I'm really confused at how people can afford to drive a car that's seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000. Um, yeah. And then you also mentioned, too, that this is only one car. So people are spending 15% of their income on one single car. And so double that. And then they're spending 30 on cars, 30 on, on housing. It's pretty wild. And then add to that, fortunately for us, we didn't buy that second vehicle. I don't know what we'd be doing since everyone works from home now and no one's even yeah. really driving in the first place. You've got 50% of your household income just sitting in your garage and sitting on the street. Yep. So I think this is a huge one, especially now, and maybe thinking of creative ways to only owning one car, kind of doing what Travis does and getting a used car for cheap. Um, let's quickly, right, right out of time, let's transition to number three, because I think this is the most important one, I think. This is one that can definitely get away from you, and that's food. That's right. And this is one of my favorite topics too. And just to real quick to wrap up on the last topic. So I wrote a, another blog and it's called something like the journey and life hacks or something like that. I wrote it a long time back, but in there, I talk in a lot more detail about buying used cars and cheap and food specifically. So to the point of food, this was really interesting. I came across a study. It's called the national study of millionaires is actually a study done by the Dave Ramsey team. And they study, I think it was 10,000 millionaire households in the U.S. They get all the data on where they spend their money and that kind of stuff. And this was interesting to me that non-millionaires spend 57% more on food costs compared to millionaires, which was just, just blew my mind. In addition to that, when we talk about restaurants, which is the thing that can get away from you most easily, right? There's often, not always, it's just a kind of a generalization, but the statistic is that there's an average of a 300% markup on the food that you're buying or the beverages that you're buying at a restaurant. So to put that in perspective, a meal you might be able to make at home for $5, you're at least going to pay 15 at a restaurant, sometimes 20, 25 plus tip and tax and everything else. So it can really get away from you and add up. In terms of personal finance and budgeting, to me, this is the number one category. Well, housing, obviously, if you're flexible and willing to downsize or compromise. But I mean, food can absolutely be 100% in your control. And you can eat healthy food, too, for cheap. It's about shopping around, maybe even using coupons, buying things that are on sale, whatever. But those stats really stood out to me. And that was crazy. Yeah. And you said that you had the numbers for the groceries, which it doesn't have exactly how much as a percent of their income is spending, but it was like 300, 450, $600 per month. And then you have the restaurants, which are the poorest 20% spend 16.6% of their income at restaurants. The wealthiest spend 178 So it seems like the percentage is pretty close. Yeah. And so again, you've got 30% in the house. You've got 15% on the car, probably 30% in the car. That's 60. Another almost 20%, that's 80% spent on these categories. And then food definitely can get out of hand. And one thing that you're like, kind of blew my mind that made me sad and made me realize I need to change my behavior. And we talk about the markup on the restaurants. And obviously, I know that it's more expensive at restaurants, but I don't really thought about it too deeply. And you said that when you got to eat, what are you paying for? You're paying for the service. You're paying for it being convenient. They're cooking for you. Someone's bringing your food. They're refilling your drink. Uh, the atmosphere is usually really nice. They're dressed up. You're dressed up. It's calm. There's music playing. It's dark. Yeah. But when you buy Uber Eats or it's food delivery, you're paying <laughs> that markup. You're not getting anything. You're sitting in your house. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, and it's, it's warm. It's not even good. And you feel horrible afterwards. And all you have is the convenience factor. So I'm saying this right now to all the best of your listeners. I'm doing Uber Eats once a week moving forward maximum and not as much as I've been doing it now staying at home and I'm sure a lot of other people might be relating with me they'd be getting Uber East DoorDash because again it's super convenient 
but it's really expensive. Yeah, it certainly is. And something to think about during COVID and lockdown too, a lot of these restaurants are a curbside only, delivery, takeout, whatever. So to my wife and I anyway, when we go out to a restaurant, it's for those reasons I point out. It's either for an incredible atmosphere, it's for networking with a big group of people, it's for that type of service where maybe at home to go cook for 15 people isn't really realistic for us. So a restaurant makes more sense. As long as you're using that in proportion and for those purposes, there's nothing wrong with restaurants. It's just to your point, you're going out five times a week just because, well, I forgot to make my lunch today or whatever. I'm going to go spend 20 bucks on lunch. That's where it can really start to kind of get out of control. So yeah, it's in your control. (laughs) Everybody listening, most of our meals that we have at home are, I would say $5 or less. It's Mm -hmm. pretty crazy. And they're healthy too. We're not eating beans and rice. All right, Travis, anything else you want to say before we wrap up? Again, just kind of back to the concept of enough. I think my takeaway from the study was just realize what is enough for you. And if you really do have the long-term wealth goals, you really are trying to build wealth. I think most people listening to the show are. They're investors of some sort or aspiring investors. These are the things that take away your long-term goals. You let this stuff get out of control and you don't hit your goals long time. So it's kind of that, what's more important? Retirement or perhaps early retirement, time freedom, all those things, or eating out at restaurants, driving fancy cars and (laughs) buying bigger and bigger homes to impress people that really don't care about you. (laughs) Exactly. That's my take. And then my my last thing would be being real estate investors and the fact that you are able to take advantage of leverage, 3.5% down loans for house hacks, 20% down loans for investments, 25% down loans for investment. Every dollar spent on something like this equates $4 or more less of real estate that you can invest in since you're able to to make that money go go further. That's another way to kind of look at it too from a more mathematical lens. So, all right, Travis, well, I've enjoyed it. Again, thank you for this blog post. I'm looking forward to applying some of these food tactics. I'm pretty good on the housing and the transportation field, but the food I'm a mess at. So I'm going to work on that. And we'll be back next week for the Actively Passive Investing Show. Best of listeners, as always, thank you for listening. Have a best every day, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, Dale. PropStream is an all-in-one platform that gives you the tools you need to reach more leads, book more meetings, and close more deals with less work. With PropStream, you can find vacant and off-market properties, locate potential investors, or gain invaluable market insight in seconds. PropStream also features state-of-the-art marketing tools, that allow you to send out direct mail postcards and ringless voicemail, which will help you close more deals with less stress. Visit your7dayfreetrial.com to start your free trial and experience all the amazing features PropStream has to offer. That's your, the number seven, dayfreetrial.com. Are you interested in getting started in real estate syndication but don't know how? My friend Whitney Sewell is the host of the Daily Real Estate Syndication Show podcast. He interviews top experts in the industry to help you learn the cutting edge tools and strategies of the syndication business. You can find Whitney and his podcast at lifebridgecapital.com.